What's going on, guys? Happy Monday. Today is June 7th, and I'm going to go ahead and deem this as the kickoff episode to the summer 2021 podcast episodes. Uh, as much as I would love to keep talking about turkey hunting, I guess we gotta, <laughs> we have to leave that behind eventually. Jordan and I finished up turkey season this past week in Michigan, and uh, everyone's back home now and going to try to endure these hot Mississippi summer months. Um, but I, I like the summer episodes, you know, during the during the fall and spring, elk season, deer season, duck season, turkey season, whatever, we tend to focus on those topics. And the summer, we like to get creative and talk about some, some you know, just some things that we don't, don't get to focus on during when hunting season is in. So excited about that. Um, this episode in particularly, I'm talking with Dr. Marcus Lashley. Y'all might remember him just from this past spring. Uh, we talked about prescribed burning earlier when turkey season was in. And this week we're talking about Per y'all's request, a lot of y'all, I mean, I'm, when we talk, when we reach out and say, hey, what do y'all want us to talk about? Always, always, always y'all bring up the subject of land management in all different facets. If it's from food plots and planning, the timber management, to trapping, to habitat, uh, everything, everything that, that encompasses land management. So I couldn't think of anyone more informed than Dr. Lashley. And he had a very interesting IGTV video that he put up on the University of Florida Deer Labs Instagram that they were kind of talking about the balance between trapping and land management and uh, how that relates to fawn recruitment and so on and so forth. And it actually, just in that short IGTV video, it kind of, uh, I guess, broke some of the myths or some of the common things that you hear. And I said, you know, this would probably be something that our listeners would like to hear about. And so I'm not going to go into any more detail. I'm going to let him do that because he knows a lot more than I do. I think you all really enjoy this conversation. But first, before we get into it, I want to remind you about the Onyx Hunt app. Onyx is something that we literally use every single day, we, whether it's elk season, deer season, duck season, turkey season, whether we're upland hunting, it does not matter. Onyx Hunt is a game changer. It is. It helps us tremendously. I promise you, it'll be one of those apps that you get and you will not regret it. So go check out the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code PRIMOS20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt membership. Hope y'all have a good rest of the Monday and a good rest of the week and enjoy the episode. I can't, I didn't, I hadn't even thought about that from a, from a teacher side of things dealing with the, cause you, with the whole pandemic and stuff. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. Yeah. And I was still, you know, going around and doing, doing research and, and uh, visiting with landowners and stuff. So there's no telling where I'm going to be when I'm teaching. So I just kind of use the standard background. Right, right, right. I understand. For him. <laughs> it's it's uh it's appropriate for I guess for I mean that would have been really appropriate the last time we talked and we were talking about fires and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, for sure. yeah. yeah. So what's going what's going on, man? That's what's going on in your part of the world. Oh, not too much. I'm actually in Alabama now, uh, doing some food pot stuff. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. So my, my parents live in Sumter County, Alabama. It's right okay. on the Mississippi line. Not too yeah. Far from yeah. Yeah. I heard that. Um, I guess before we jump into the, the guts of everything, we can have a little bit of entertaining talk. Did you, did you get to break away and do a little bit of hunting turkey hunting yourself or, or no? Yeah. I, I got to hunt a fair amount this year. I probably, let's see, I hunted in one, two, three, 
or five states, so pretty pretty decent. Uh, and I don't think I probably got in the woods twenty or twenty five times, something like that. But I got, got a few turkeys, so probably didn't get to enjoy it as much as you did, but uh, that's pretty good for me. <laughs> yeah, well, I saw you were with uh, you hunted with um, Craig Harper a few times, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I went up. So he, he was my mentor, and uh, we still go hunt together quite a bit. And we also have some pro- projects going on together. So kind of mm-hmm. use that as an opportunity during turkey season to visit study sites and kill a couple turkeys while we're at it. So <laughs> I like that. I like that finding ways to work it in. Yeah, I, I um. I sat in on a seminar of, of his, it has to have been at least three years ago now. Uh, but it was at one of the, it was like the QDMA convention. I think they had it in new Orleans, but, uh, I I gave one at that one, uh, three years ago, I think as well. Okay. Yeah. I was probably, we were only there for like, I don't know, a day or two. I don't remember, but, yeah. I remember Jordan Jordan knew who he was, um, and I had not heard of him. We sat in on that seminar and he was kind of he's like a lot of those guys like 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 you and Dr. Craig and uh Chamberlain. It's like every time I'm exposed to them, like talking on things for the first time and which uh segue into what you know we ended up talking again back <laughs> y'all. One thing I, I'll come out and say this, like um, I initially started following y'all's Instagram page um, was it's correct. It's it's the UF deer lab, right? Is that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yep. Y'all have been like that page is for some, for, I'm, you know, most of our listeners, all of our listeners are going to be, turkey eccentric or deer eccentric and just hunting minded people. Um, and a lot of our listeners like yeah. the, the content y'all put out there, man, is excellent for someone trying to just, you know, the wanting to learn, uh, y'all, y'all really do a good job with that. Yeah, um, I appreciate that. So yeah, I'll, I'll probably plug it again at another point. I, appreciate it. I mean, it's. Yeah. Yeah, well, please do. You know, we're trying to grow just so we can get information out. But I think that comes from, you know, being a passionate hunter for my entire life. Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about the kind of the ways that I can uh, gather information and, and give that information to hunters in a way that, that they want it and it's digestible. So hopefully that, that shows uh, with, with what we're putting out there. Sure thing. Um, so the very topic of this podcast, uh, itself is based off of something that y'all put out on an Instagram page. Um, y'all put, it was, a an IGTV video, uh, where they were talking specifically about trapping, um, and how that goes hand in hand with property management. Uh, and I think the terminology that I used when I text you saying I wanted to do a podcast about this, because, uh, we, like I said, it, it's never ending. When when we ask folks what they want to hear on this podcast, it's we the the topic of land management, and then go more specific and what can I do to help uh, my deer herd? What can I do to help my turkeys? And so on and so forth. The those kind of questions are are never ending. 
they're always wanting us to talk about that. And obviously we like to cater to that. And so I watched this IGTV, IGTV video and he's talking about trapping and how I'm the thing that caught me is like right at the beginning is he told that he was saying that he tries to steer landowners away from going that route first off. So yeah. let's open up with that. Cause that, I yeah, that was, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think there, you know, there's a lot of things for us to unpack on this issue and, you know, the first thing, Will, that was Dr. Will Goolsby at Auburn University that I was interviewing on that. And he's one of the researchers. He's also a lifelong hunter and, and loves hunting and fishing. And, and I know him well and know that, that that's what he's passionate about. And he had also been involved in several long-term studies. The best studies that we have with coyote removals related to uh, fawn survival and you know, we, we've kind of been bouncing that idea around, and I, I think uh, the problem is that it, some of the stuff isn't necessarily directly intuitive, and so I think we should impact some of these things. But the reason that he said that, and it, it's sort of a default, I think, for some biologists but without even actually knowing why they're saying it in some cases, is that we really commonly see landowners trying to fix their problems by removing predators and not addressing other issues that they have. And I think that's what, what he was getting at when he came out the gate kind of firing. You know, the reason <laughs> that, uh, that he said that he steers people away from it. And I agreed with him is because we see people go all in on predator trapping and kind of neglect the other problems that are underlying. Mm-hmm. Uh, with habitat in particular. And uh, sometimes that's because people don't own the land and they can't do anything else. And, and that's understandable. But a lot of times people do own the land and, and they have options that might be much cheaper and much more effective with, with you know, to accomplish their goals. So I think uh, just to, to start going through, if we're talking about coyote trapping for fawn survival, We've had several studies now, and I don't know how many there have been in the United States, but there have been four or five really key ones in the in the southeastern United States, mm-hmm. where we have intensively trapped coyotes right during fawning. We've had professional trappers who are very good at what they do. They remove lots of coyotes. It's intensive. It's on really large scales. And even doing that, we can't consistently produce more phones. Hmm. And that to me, I'm right there with you. Initially I was like, I don't understand this. What, how is that possible? That's a head scratcher. Yeah. Yeah. Like what, how could that be? Obviously removing coyotes should result in less coyotes and less coyotes should result in less phones being eaten. And after doing this several times, including one study that they, I think they followed phone survival on a really large area at Savannah River site. John Kilgo was the, the lead principal investigator on that project. Uh, they followed phone survival in two big areas on Savannah River site for four years. And then they implemented four years of intensive trapping on part of it. Uh, but it was still thousands and thousands of acres, you know, way larger than the scale than the average person would have access to. Mm-hmm. And in, 
you know, removing hundreds of coyotes in these areas. And uh, they did that for four years. And they had one, I think it was the initial year, they had a bump in fawn survival in the trapped area. And then they had two years where they did not see anything. And then they had one year, I don't remember what order they were in, but they had one year where the fawn survival was lower in the trapped area. So it's like, wow, that that really didn't work. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's so then crazy. they started trying to figure out why. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, we started trying to figure out why. And it, I was one of these people, that, and during my PhD work and, and postdoc work, I was working on an area in North Carolina, Fort Bragg military installation, where the deer population was not doing well, and coyotes had recently colonized. And when I say recent, I mean in the last few decades. And uh, they were concerned about coyote predation. We were following adults and fawns in that population and the coyotes. We had radio tags. So one of the things that, that may have been striking to you when you watch that video that we put on, we put one of the coyotes movement patterns that we had collared in that study and mm -hmm. that video. And it became apparent one thing that's a real problem is the scale at which we're operating and the scale at which the coyote populations are operating. And we radio tagged that individual and I think it was an adult female even. It wasn't even one that was supposed to be moving, right? And we put a collar on her and it was only a few months later, she was several hundred miles away in a different state. And uh, we had multiple coyotes do that. And there have been coyotes collared in Eastern North Carolina that did that. There have been some collared in Georgia and uh, I think in Alabama as well where they've literally moved hundreds of miles in a very short period of time. And they're not in the back of a truck, right? They're, they're walking. The one we, uh, the one that we put on the specific one we put in that video, we tracked basically from point to point, a minimum distance it would have had to walk mm -hmm. over a three month period or whatever it was. And uh, it was 900 miles, I think. It would have been the minimum distance, you know, that it would have had to walk. So I think that's one thing that is not very, in, it's not initially intuitive, but when you think about the scale at which they're operating, then it starts to make a little bit of sense. Yeah. Okay. You can intensively trap, but next week you might have a coyote replace the one you removed from a county over. Mm -hmm. Right. We just can't operate at that scale. Yeah. You know, unless everybody gets together and we, we start operating at a county level scale, we're going to have this issue of immigration. And a lot of the coyotes, uh, Will Goolsby talked about that in the video. He, he's done some studies looking at how many of the coyotes are transient like that. And it's a large portion of them is the, the short end of it. A, hmm. a lot of coyotes are just kind of bouncing around waiting to jump in. So another issue, and, and uh, we really need to study this stuff more because we don't understand it very well, I'll caveat with that, but uh, we are having these studies come out and every one is just like an eye-opening thing for me. Right. Uh, another study by another colleague in, in Virginia, she's really good with movement ecology and understanding how to model that with things like coyotes that are really hard to follow because uh, they're, they're bouncing around at such a large scale uh, it's really hard to model but uh, she 
basically did this model to, sh to really look at what the coyote is doing while it's moving around. And essentially what the pattern came out, it looked like a donut, their, their home range. In yeah. terms of the use, it looked, you know, they kind of had this, this cold spot in the middle where they didn't use it so much. And then it was really intensively used all around the border. And what we, what I think she kind of alluded to and what we think was happening just as a you know, science as a whole is that the coyote is defending its boundaries really well. So it's huh. using a lot of its time to defend its territory. Yeah. And that kind of suggests, and there are some studies, especially out West that suggest this, that if you remove a dominant female in particular, essentially her, you know, she, she's spending a lot of her time defending her borders. And what happens is if you remove her, then she stops defending those borders. And then all the transients apparently can move in. Huh. You may actually temporarily, and that again, we don't have very good data on this and it's scattered all over the place, but we think that, you know, she's, spending all of her time defending that territory. And when she stops doing that, the transients apparently fill in really quickly. And in some cases they might have to reestablish who's gonna be dominant. She may end up temporarily with a whole lot more coyotes than you usually would have had. Wow, that's crazy. So, yeah. Yeah, and so let, let's back up for a minute. Does trapping ever work? Yes, it does in some uh, systems. So uh, particularly intensively trapping mesocarnivores that are nest predators, uh, that, that's been shown with quail and turkeys and uh, grouse, I think. So uh, in, in those systems, intensively trapping can increase nest success. Mm -hmm. And just think about the scale issue that we were just talking about. Right. You're, you're operating at a much different scale with those predators and intensively trapping. You can kind of temporarily at least cause this low population during that critical time. Hmm. So in that scenario, there have been some, uh, some cases where we've increased nesting success. Right. But even that's pretty inconsistent. And that's also telling to me, and let me just give you two examples of, of where it was inconsistent. One, uh, Bill Palmer is now the director of Tall Timbers. His research in North Carolina during his graduate studies was pretty interesting to me. He was studying quail nesting success, and he did it in a factorial design, which basically means he had a population of quail he was following. He didn't do anything to and then there was a quail population, and this was replicated on multiple properties. There was a quail population where they only trapped nest predators. And then they had one where they actually, in, it was an agricultural landscape. They started increasing the amount of usable uh, field borders, which, which are you know, just high quality early succession for nesting for quail. Right. And then they had properties where they did both. In that study, when they removed predators, but did not improve habitat conditions. There was no effect of removal. They didn't, you know, removing all the nest predators did not result in more nest mm -hmm. success. Mm -hmm. When they improved habitat, that increased nest success. And then when the two were done together, that was an even bigger bump in nest success. So right. In other words, the effect of 
predator trapping on that on those quail populations was habitat dependent. Yeah. So the the, the interesting thing there for me, it's been say probably three or four years ago, I had uh, Adam Butler come on. He's the the head of the turkey the turkey program in Mississippi, yeah. and he said something that was completely consistent with what you just said talking yeah. about nest predators he said he always directs people you know he says i'm not going to tell someone not to trap but he said if, you know he's like i'm not going to you know push anyone away from doing that in terms of nest predators but he said if you don't put emphasis on improving the habitat then you're not exactly what you just said he goes you're not going to see any real significance you know yeah. it's as far as nest success, it's the habitat was just had to be the absolute key, which makes sense. Yeah. Uh, well, and, uh, you know what people, I know people get tired of hearing about that. I know that because I tell people that and they tell me they're tired of hearing it all the time. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it really does make sense when you're addressing habitat, you're addressing all of the things that the animal needs, right? And you're not yeah. just addressing one specific thing at a time. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, that's one of the better studies. There, there are a few more like that where we actually have all of them going on at once. But the problem that we have with with uh, white-tailed deer or wild turkey or, you know, something that has a predator that's so wide-ranging like coyotes, we we don't have any studies that are factorial like that. That, that, that was kind of a unique example where we can operate at a scale on quail with those nest predators where they could demonstrate that. And I think, you know, uh, we still need to work on that, but they pretty well showed that relationship with quail that habitat was important first. Trapping on top of habitat can provide some additional benefit uh, if you, you know, if you're doing it intensively at the right time. Mm-hmm. So let, let's, uh, given that that we don't have those good experiments with deer and turkey let's talk about some other things uh, that you know some other data that we do have and uh you know we can think about think through reasons why we might not see the same thing with with these other species given that coyotes are their predator Uh, so we'll uh, Goolsby in that video talked about a study he was involved with, and I think this is probably the best study out there, but we still need more work on it. Uh, he went back to the, the study site in Savannah River where they had that long-term data set. They initially looked at the habitat conditions around an individual fawn mm-hmm. to see if the plant communities locally were influencing their survival, and they initially said no. So in other words, right right at a phone site, if you go and measure all the characteristics associated right at that phone site, it doesn't matter. And we did the same thing in North Carolina, and it's been done three or four more times in different places, and we always come out with that answer. The local habitat structure doesn't influence the survival probability of that individual. What, What Will did was go back and it's like, okay, well, let's look at the landscape context that the phone is in, and does that matter? And he looked at it from a lot of different kinds of, or a lot lot of points of view, I guess. And uh, what he settled in on, what showed that it actually did matter was the amount of different kinds of cover that the phone had access to mattered a lot. Uh. 
So while it didn't necessarily matter if it was laying in in this old field here or this you know this thin pine stand over here that has what we would think of as excellent cover, or you know this hardwood stand, this closed canopy that has poor cover, it didn't really matter that much which one of those was it was laying in. What mattered is that it had a whole bunch of those options, and I. I don't necessarily think that's because the fawn or the mother is having a choice to put it where the lowest risk is. I think it, what it's showing us is that the coyote has m several more things to consider when it's trying to figure out where to hunt. Ah, uh, yeah. But we're kind of, we're increasing the complexity of decision-making for the coyote and coyotes are lazy just like we are, right? <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're going to find the things that are easiest to catch. And when they have a whole bunch of different habitat types like that, probably what we're seeing them do is they're generalist and they're, they're eating what's easy to find. And fawns by intent are hard to find, especially when you give them the opportunity to be hard to find. And it's really easy to catch berries when they're hanging around on plants everywhere. And it's you know, easy to catch small mammals relatively when there's a whole bunch of them around. Uh, you know, so that's, in a nutshell, that's what we think is happening, is it increasing the landscape complexity, just making it, the decision-making process a little more difficult. And also, it also makes a whole bunch of different kinds of resources available that are easy. Pickings. Right. You're taking it to where that coyote can't go, okay, there's literally one place that these fawns can be. Right. So and we, we demonstrated that pretty well, I think, at Fort Bragg, where that, that's a landscape that's under really frequent fire and it's sand hill. Mm -hmm. And essentially, when you have really frequent fire and sand hill like that and you're operating at a large scale, which they were at the time, what was happening is the only places that had high quality cover in the landscape were associated with these little ephemeral creeks running mm -hmm. through where it was wet and uh, a lot of the landscape those little ephemeral creeks the vegetation that was associated with that that was good high quality fallen structure was only 20 yards or 30 yards wide often mm -hmm. and that linear feature of really high quality cover of course the fawns are all going to be bedding in that and uh whereas a key you know the only place on the landscape to key in on where a fawn would be for a coyote is that same cover and right. it's now distributed on the landscape in a way that's really easy to hunt. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's, that's been demonstrated in a few different scenarios where, you know, uh, in agricultural systems where we have really narrow field borders, for instance, we might see higher nest predation in those. Yeah. Uh, that was going to be a question I had actually, because you, know, you were talking about, you know, the example you made with the quail, how one of the things that they did was increase, you know, I think he said they were like increasing the habitat around those field borders. Yeah. Like you're saying, I mean, if they're nested in just those little narrow pockets, then it, like, it's easy pickings for whatever yeah. kind of predator. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that, that's one of the recommendations that's come out of a lot of the, the quail work in agricultural systems is that our field borders have some minimum width that they need to be mm -hmm. before, you know, we start to have that issue. So, <clears throat> yeah, so that that's kind of uh, you know one of the things. It, it's also the the habitat complexity is 
is more easily manipulated in many cases, especially for a small landowner. Let's think about, you know, if you've got coyotes that literally might be operating at the county level and you have a hundred acres, yeah. you're, you're not going to make a difference in, you know, with trapping. Right. It's just, you, you can't operate at the right scale to, to do that. And, you know, I think that's what the work is showing, but you can, op- you know, at, at that scale, you can increase the habitat quality such that it makes your phones harder to find. Right while also making more available nutrition for the doe who needs to meet lactation requirements, which are more stringent. And it also happens to be feeding your bucks that are growing antlers at the same time better. You know, you're addressing a lot of things that you want to at the same time with that. Uh, the problem comes in when, when you don't own a, your own land, you know, you may not have that option. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I, you know, I can relate to. Um, so the some other things that are that are funny that are going on that I think are really just they're cool to think about and uh, uh-huh. probably you know when we're trying to conceptualize why trapping would be pretty inconsistent especially when we're thinking about different critters and what their predators are mm-hmm. there are a couple of things one in in the quail world uh, I think it's been really well demonstrated but uh we, we have a thing called compensatory mortality, and that's just a fancy term for saying that a certain number of individuals in a population are going to die no matter what the cause is. Ah, okay. So we, we often will design hunting programs or bag limits around this idea where, you know, 50% of quail, I'm just making these numbers up, but let's just for ease of numbers, 50% of quail are going to die. It doesn't matter if 40% of those were killed by us or by other predators. You know, we can kill X, X percent of that population and you're never going to have higher than 50% mortality. So, you know, that's one thing that kind of uh, that isn't intuitive immediately to people. But when you start thinking about it, it makes sense. Yeah, like 50% of quail are going to die from some reason or another. So if you remove predators, that doesn't necessarily mean that those 50% still aren't going to die from something else. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and we base our hunting you know, pressure on that in many cases. And I think the quail world is probably the best example uh, mm-hmm. where we know we, get, we have a good idea of how much hunting can be compensatory to other causes so we can yeah. harvest that many and never cause the an increase in the background mortality rate uh, because the coil that we killed would have been killed by something else anyway, or they would have died from exposure to, to you know, temperature or, or rain or something. Right. So, so that's, that's, a, that's interesting. So you're the, the limits or whatever getting based on to keep it within that compensatory range. Yeah, in some cases where we literally are setting bag limits and, and uh, often in the quail world, that might even be done at the property level huh. where they, they've decided, okay, this is what our quail numbers are. We can, we can harvest X percent of that. That's how many birds we can take this year. Huh. Right? And they're estimating how many that's interesting. Uh, based on that idea. Yeah, I'd never heard of that before. That is, that's interesting. So th- these are kind of the, thing, the, the things that are in the scientist weeds uh, that they, we don't normally talk about, but I, I found I like to bring them up because I find that people, when they start hearing about that, it's like, oh, that's really cool. It's more, much more complex than we thought. 
it's kind of cool. And it also makes sense why we keep saying some of these things without giving you the context. I think that context is important. Well, and it's like kind of what we've talked about. We, we've talked about this kind of the last time you were on. It's, I've seen uh, here lately, I don't know if probably the past two, maybe three years, I've just seen this overall growing want for more of that kind of knowledge. And, yeah. and I get it. it. It bleeds over on this podcast because we put out all the like I said, we put out all the time. What do y'all want to hear? Because if we're not yeah. putting out what they want to hear, then what are we doing? You know, exactly. And, you know, exactly. and people are wanting to know. People want to know that kind of stuff, man. Like you said, because had you not told me that, I'm not a scientist. I'm not. I don't spend the time that you spend out doing that. I wouldn't know that. That's that's what? cool information to me. Yeah. And I promise you, some of these listeners will like that. You know. Well, I hope, I hope so. Uh, you know, I, I've kind of seen that over the years, you know, it's with, a, with an issue like trapping. It doesn't intuitively, at, right, right out of the bat, it's not intuitive why scientists would be telling you, well, it's probably not the best way to spend your money if you're yeah. not doing these other things. Yeah. Right? And it's not immediately obvious to people who aren't really in the weeds why that might be, because it makes you know, intuitively, we would think, oh, you remove predators, you, re you reduce predation, you have more of whatever you're trying to have more of, right? That right. seems like it should work. And in some cases, it does, but it doesn't always. And I'm just kind of, I think it's important to tell people some of those reasons it might not work, and then you get a better understanding of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think we've made the mistake as scientists, and I'm, you know, not to speak on the behalf of all scientists, but I think we've made the mistake of assuming that we could just t tell people if you do A, you'll get C, and we'll leave B out. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I'm hopefully trying to help address that. And I think a lot of scientists are kind of getting to that point. A lot of people know fire is good or know, yeah. you know, you know you, you've got a good handle on some of these things that we've been trying to tell you are good or bad for a long time. Now yeah. we really need to unpack some of those issues and talk about them in a little more detail. Yeah, and not only that, it's it's like uh, take it from like a there's a guy he's a he's a landowner, you know, and this guy he knows he likes deer hunt, he knows he likes turkey hunt. He's heard from this biologist over here. He needs to do this. He's heard from his buddy that owns land, you know, a couple miles down the road that he's doing this and that he thinks this is kind of working. And he mm -hmm. listened to this podcast that's telling this. And then he watched this YouTube video. You got all this information. Whereas like, that's why I bring folks like you and Dr. Chamberlain on here. Cause this is not, we're not discussing opinions here, you know, yeah. like we're going off of, experiments and times in the field that, that you've done. And this is why you're coming up with these things, whether someone particularly like, which today we're not really talking about like last time when we were talking about fire that, you know, someone could get, have very sometimes heated opinions on that subject today. I don't think we're not, we're not really getting into the diving into the depths on that to, with this subject, I don't think, but still for me, I know if I was a landowner and someone told me, like you said, don't trap, put more emphasis on this. I'd be like, okay, well, why? You know, like I want to know those things. These are things right. that I would want to know. And so I, I really enjoy the opportunity to, 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 you know, to give light to that, that kind of information for one, yeah. I think it needs to be out there. And two, I personally find it interesting. And I think a lot of other people do too. 
Well, yeah, and I think one of the things, like you were just giving that example, if I just told you don't don't put your fo- your focus on trapping, put it on this other, then that kind of it, to me it would give you the perception that I'm just anti-trapping. Yeah, and, and I'm not. Yeah. Like if you want to go trap, that's fun. I like trapping; it's fun, and it, I'm just trying to give you now. I'm trying to give y'all information on why that might not be the most effective way to meet your objectives, but it is a good tool if you use it in certain ways, you know, Mm -hmm. to accomplish your objectives. It's just not a sure all be all end all solve to to your problems. Right. right? So I I think that's the problem is that people get guarded about it, thinking that that scientists are just anti-trapping. And I, I don't think that is the case with a lot of us It's uh, more of just, we need to be more forthcoming with, with some of these details that get in the weeds. Yeah. So with that in mind, another thing that I think is particularly fascinating and, and it is intuitive when you start thinking about it. And I, I hear people talk about it a little bit, but not necessarily with the name of it. It would be compensatory reproduction. Okay. So we had, we just talked about compensatory mortality of the prey we also have had some data that suggests compensatory reproduction of, of predators. And essentially what that means is if you remove predators, the ones that are remaining have more resources available or have some sort of cue where they can expand their litter size. Huh. So by there's some data, uh, particularly out in the Midwest with coyotes up in Midwest and uh, data on some other species of predators suggesting that that could be occurring at some level. One thing that, uh, that you probably have heard of, if you were, you know, you may not have heard that term, but you probably have heard that if you trap pigs, you're going to, you know, the, the remaining pigs will just have more piglets. Right. Right, so that's yeah. the same same idea that when you persecute that species by you know reducing its density like that, we might see an expanded expanded litter size. And the, and you know coyotes and and uh, several other fur bearers like that have that capacity to expand. So one thing that's probably going on to some degree is that we persecute a species and then they just have a higher reproductive rate, and then we end up with more of them just you know like we don't actually decrease the population in the long term because they just expand to have more uh more young yeah so that's when you know we think about oh we're if we just keep doing it for years and years and years and years we're going to end up with less of them and that's not necessarily true yeah (laughs) which to me that when i learned about that just kind of blew my mind Fascinating, yes. Information that I like hearing, no, I do not. <laughs> I don't well, like that. that. Yeah, and, I, and I'm not saying that uh, you could never ever decrease the population of, of a predator because of compensatory reproduction, but it, it's another interesting thing that sort of muddies up that relationship a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I, I've heard about that with pigs, and like you said, I've never heard the term compensatory reproduction. I'm going to use that term next time around people so people think I'm smart. <laughs> but, but, but no, I, 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 I've heard of that concept with pigs for sure. Uh, but I, I had no idea that that, that was also something that could be seen in coyotes. What about like other like nest predators, like bobcats? Is it, do you see that with those as well? 
Uh, I don't think there's very strong evidence for bobcats, but some of the other fur bearers, the the uh, nesting predators, I uh, think that that there's pretty good evidence that that can occur. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not super familiar with that literature base, but I know that that is a thing that happens. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just put it that way. We have good literature to suggest that, that that happens in lots of species. Yeah, I don't like that information at all. <laughs> it's good to know. <laughs> well, that, you know, essentially what that means, and, and I think pigs are the perfect example of this because a lot of people are trying to get rid of them, right? Right. And it's really hard. And what happens is, you know, we have all these different things going on. We're, we're at a, you know, a big scale. Uh, we potentially have litter sizes getting bigger in response to our management. And then you know, another problem that you have in that, in the case of pigs is that the last 10% of them or so are the ones that are really, you know, they're already smart and they're sparse in the environment and they have a high reproductive rate and they, they last a little bit in terms of eradicating pigs is the hardest little bit that costs us the most money per individual. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So but really I think it's important just to point out that there, there are actually a lot of biological reasons why we should expect to see some inconsistency in a practice like trapping, hmm. right? You, you, you're going to have inconsistent results. And in most, you know, the, the most intuitive thing that we can take from all of the data when we kind of look at it collectively is that trapping is a really good tool and you, you have to be operating at a spatial scale that's relevant to the species you're trying to trap. And that tool is most effective when you have good habitat underlying, you know, the, the, uh, the survival of, of whatever species you, you want, whether it's deer or turkeys or whatever. You don't have that underlying good habitat. Uh, the trappings are not not going to be very effective. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the, really, the thing that it, you know, because it's at such large scale, I wish that we had some long term studies to show that, like we do with the quail, uh, yeah. Example. Uh, but it, unfortunately, that's not available right now. We're kind of have them piecemeal. Gotcha. We know that we know when we trap. Even at 10,000 acre scales, we can't consistently increase phone survival. Uh, but we don't have the data showing whether or not that's true when we have manipulated habitat so that it's really high quality as well. Gotcha. So we don't know what trapping would do when we put them together, in other words. So I have, uh, this is like an example, and then you can tell me if it's a good example or not, and then it'll, it'll feed into a question. I don't know why I didn't think about this right off the bat. Um, so I know of, I've got to be, I've got to be pretty vague with the location of this just to respect the person. I know he wouldn't want me broadcasting specifics of location on this podcast, but it'll still be enough to get. Uh, so this is a, is a large ranch out West. And when I say large, I mean, it's over a hundred thousand acres altogether. Um, and it's been within the last five years, they started trapping it intensively, the whole thing. And from like a firsthand perspective, like I know they had, they had, I think in the first or second year, they saw immediate 
jumps in um, fawn success rates in antelope. Uh, and then like just from firsthand, I know we were seeing like a lot more small game around there than we used to. Like we were seeing a lot more, like never saw rabbits out there before. All of a sudden we're seeing little rabbits. We're seeing more mule deer than we were. Um, but again, this is on like, and it's over a hundred thousand acres altogether. Yeah. Uh, and, but then border and ranch, which also, I think it's similar in size at the beginning, they were trapping as well. Then they stopped. And this, when I said, this could be an example of what you're talking about when they stopped trapping, uh, they were not seeing as much success on their end as far as fawn success for the antelope and all that. And they were saying, because this border ranch stopped trapping, all they were doing is when they were getting coyotes out of their place, it was just feeding in from the other, from the other ranch. Does that sound accurate to you? I think that's reasonable. And, and I'm basing that on science. Uh, Mm -hmm. The, study at savannah river they actually when they were trapping all the coyotes they started getting genetics on every individual to figure out mm-hmm. where are they coming from and they they're they wanted to know is the you know, they basically kept trapping and they never ran out of coyotes to trap even though it was an enormous scale mm-hmm. they just wanted to know where are all the coyotes coming from is it actually the the individuals that make it through on the property producing more or are they coming from somewhere else mm-hmm. in other words immigrating in sort of like what you're describing and uh, they concluded in that study, which was over a long term, over a giant area, uh, they concluded that most of the coyotes were immigrating in. Mm-hmm. So that probably is, uh, to some degree, you know what you what they were observing. Right. Some of the, you know, it, the larger the scale, especially with coyotes, the larger the scale you go at, the better you would be able to, to affect, you know, survival rates. Right. So the, I'll also throw another curveball at you uh, yeah. because it's another thing that people don't think about. And it was pretty striking to me. Uh, there, there's one example with coyotes, but the better examples are probably with wolves and uh, some some uh, stuff with puma, different puma species. But uh, there's another thing called a mesocarnivore release. Okay. And essentially what that means is you have a top predator in the environment and it sort of suppresses by being there because it eats them or it's competing with them or whatever. It suppresses all these other mesocarnivores. Mm-hmm. You have this top carnivore like a wolf or uh, in one case it was demonstrated with coyotes. Uh, where having them on the landscape is suppressing all these other predator species, their populations. And when you remove that predator, like coyotes, uh, with there, there was an example with prairie chickens where they were looking at nest survival. When they removed coyotes, the nest survival decreased. Wow. And what they show it was strong evidence for this mesocarnivore release that, that I'm talking about. And essentially they removed coyotes and that allowed the other nest predators that were more problematic for that species to increase in abundance. And they actually ended up with lower nest survival as a result. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's one of those deals. So that the, 
all you know unknown to them the coyotes were actually keeping the nest predators in check yeah exactly wow. yeah. And, the, and the coyote will eat a nest but it's not as efficient as you know some of those other small carnivores that are right. that are really efficient nest predators yeah actively and, seeking out nest right yeah so and there's there's actually some evidence from out in the uh, upper midwest is again where the same kind of thing happened with wolves and coyotes where wolves are not very keen on killing fawns or uh, calves, depending on what species you're talking about mm-hmm. and uh, removing or decreasing the population of wolves actually resulted in uh, they, they had evidence that the coyote population was released, which then resulted in less, fawns and calves because they were more specialized on or more or better at killing those. So those kinds of studies that because of the scale and and the length of time that you would need to do it and the amount of money that goes into that kind of research, you know, we have, we have data to suggest those are happening, but we often don't really have definitive proof because it's so hard to control different things that are going on. There's a lot of stuff going on at the same time that could be affecting what you see. But what we do know is that uh, in some of those cases, we have strong evidence that removing, with the example of the prairie chicken, removing the coyotes seemed to make the mesocarnivores more abundant and we definitely had lower survival of nests as a result. So really interesting. And, you know, the reason I, I bring up all those different things is just to try to make it, clear to everybody that it is a really complex issue it's not as simple as just you remove predator and you get more prey you know there's just so much going on in the system and it's hard for us to hard to study much less even understand or apply at the scale that most people can operate so that makes me think of and you'll appreciate this that makes me think of dr robbie kroger and my applied aquatic and terrestrial ecology class at Mississippi State. Yeah. And I remember because I say this a lot to this day, he taught us, it was like the day one or day two of that class, he was talking about ecological maxims. And there, I think there's five of them. But the one that I remember is that he said, you can never just do one thing. Yeah. You yeah. can never, ever just do one thing. And I went first, I didn't know what, well, I didn't know what any of them meant at first. You had to explain them, obviously. But the more I think about that one, like this topic, exactly. It's like, you, it just, you can't, it's too complex. You can't just go, I'll take the coyotes and then I get more prairie chickens. You, you can't just do that. It's not how it works. It'd be nice sometimes if it did, but that's, it's just, there's way too many complexities and little things, little pieces and parts making all this work that it's just not that it's not that black and white. Right. Yeah. That I, I think that's a, good way to think about it uh the thing that i tell students you know because i teach all the time and uh, i commonly get this from students like man i just, why is that got to be so hard and complex like i don't understand you know we're i'm constantly throwing things like this at them that's confusing them because they start thinking about one thing one way and it's like well we have all these caveats and context dependencies and all this and then i tell them you should be happy that it's this hard we wouldn't need wildlife biologists and ecologists if it wasn't hard. (laughs) If if we understood all this fully, why would we need us? So it's job job security on our end. 
<laughs> well, there's frustration on on uh, the landowner end. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's like also there's this. What well, when I say there's a famous out of loophole quote, there's like a billion famous out of yeah. loophole quotes. But there's one. There, I remember he said one, and I'm not going to try to say it verbatim because I couldn't do it. But That's basically, true. what what he's saying is is like out of out of all the little complexities in nature, out of all that they, I mean, he says like some about all the little salient facts or something like that. He says it is absolutely impossible to learn all the facts about a single one of them because there's just so yeah. many things going on at once. And like to your, to your points, job security for a wildlife biologist, because there's just, there's always something. There's all little things that all interconnects. It's, it's, it's a lot, but there's, that's what keeps it interesting. One of, one of my favorite quotes, I, I don't remember the scientists who, who said it now, but uh, someone once said, and I'm going to paraphrase again, <laughs> uh, not only is it more complex than we think, it's more complex than we can think. <laughs> yeah yeah i think that's a good way to to look at it as well but yeah I, unfortunately i think it comes across with this particular issue that all the biologists are just anti-trapping and i don't think that's necessarily the case it certainly isn't with me so i don't want people to to think that but yeah. there are a lot of complexities and the reason that i i think a lot of us go to habitat is one thing we we pretty well demonstrated is if you improve habitat, you get more of what you, you know, the species you want, you know, uh, that, that's a pretty safe bet in most cases. Yeah. Kind of, well, that's yeah. going to be the title of this, uh, the title of this episode, because we're going to go the clickbait route. The title is yeah. going to be the clock. The title is going to be Dr. Marcus Lashley hates trapping. That's what. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's uh. It'll get some listens. <laughs> yeah, it'll get some listens, but you'll probably get get my inbox full <laughs> before. No, I yeah. wouldn't. Bet. I would. every every once in a while I'll get some phone calls or or uh you know online people will be commenting on stuff. It's like, did you actually watch what was in the <laughs> thing that <laughs> like the yeah. question or the the hate you're you're pushing my way? I you know that's not what this was about. Yeah, no, as I wouldn't do a clickbait title. That would be. I want you to come on more in the future. So that would probably be a little bridge burner there if I was to go into <laughs> something like that. Well, uh, you know, I've, I take enough heat for saying something like, "Well, you probably shouldn't focus on trapping first. You know, it's a good tool. Like, I catch yeah. enough heat for just saying something like that without giving you a lot of context. So sure, please, please well, don't. That today. was. Yeah, well, like the another thing is that, uh, and one of the reasons why we talked about that today, and I've talked about this on here before, when it comes to habitat management, property management, whatever you want to call it, um, a common theme that I see, and I'm sure you do too, it's it's like uh, people are looking for a silver bullet. You know, they're looking for that, what's the thing that I can do to ail all my problems? And like, to our point, like we're talking about the different complexities, it, you're not going to find that, you know, it's just... And tra trapping seems to be the easy thing to gravitate towards, but like you said, right. no one, no one, no one here is anti-trapping. Right. I'm not. I'm not. You're not. Uh, you're just on the. You know, just to use a, a similar thing. You know, they want the silver bullet that they can, you know, plant or or that, that's the thing we want. To, you know, we're farmers by nature, right? Yeah. And 
there are a lot of great things that you can plant, but normally you're only addressing one or two things, right? That's not the only thing you can do. It's just one of your tools. And if we don't do anything but plant something and trap something, then you're, you're missing part of the puzzle. And that, that's kind of what I'm trying to come along with. It. You know, those are great tools to have in the arsenal and, and uh, you know, use them, but understand that all of it is hinging on having that underlying habitat in good shape. Right. To start with. Right. Understood. Well, man, I've kept you for the better part of an hour and I've I, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. And like I said, we're not going to go with that clickbait title because I want you to come back on in the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, man, I tell you, like, I, I don't know, like a time frame on it yet, but I know it, like we when we spoke in the past and one thing that you that you offered up as far as subject we can talk about, I know sometime before next fall when we get to where we're talking about deer hunting all the time, I really would like to talk kind of more in depth about quail. Um, uh, I, something about the, I know like the, I've talked to um, Adam Butler again about this a yeah. little bit, like the part of I, I, their ecology intrigues me. Uh, one of the things that intrigues me particularly is like kind of the story of their demise in, in mm-hmm. my state, particularly because it hurts me that that happened because of how, how much I've fallen in love with quail hunting and I wish I could do it here more. So, but yeah, that, that's one thing I would like to have you on at some point about. Yeah. I'd be happy to, to talk about that. And uh, yeah, I put a lot of stuff on social media about quail because I get, I'm, I'm lucky enough that I work in a place that has a whole bunch of them. Not, yeah. not many places like that anymore yeah so, uh, yeah i'd love to talk about quail and they you know they're also they are the true firebird so mm-hmm. uh i like talking about them a lot and I, I talk about them a lot because of that yeah well let's we'll, we'll line that up for sure but uh as for today thank you so much for your time thank you for for dealing with me i know we, we were supposed to, the original plan for doing this podcast was like i don't know earlier this week but yeah, no, no problem. Hey, you're, you're getting to have some fun, so that's what it trying sounded to. like anyway. Yeah, <laughs> trying to, chasing that spring turkey as, as long as we possibly can. So, um, Yeah, there you go. But, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll wrap this conversation up. Guys, I hope you all enjoyed it. Again, um, check out the University of Florida Deer Lab, their Instagram. Honestly, it's been such a fun source to watch and learn from like again this was the whole point of or how this whole podcast today came from is from something that they posted so check them out and uh thank you for coming on we'll wrap it up yeah thanks for having me i really enjoyed it absolutely thank you all for listening to the speak the language podcast